Raising the Bar on BBC Radio 5 Live. I'm Robert Rinder and during this series I'm raising the bar on my world. Along with my studio guests, we're going to explore how the UK criminal justice system actually works compared to what we think we know from watching television drama series. Rarely do we get the opportunity to hear what it's actually like to experience the impact of crimes like murder, especially from the families of those who are directly affected by it. <clears throat> and rarer still to hear from those who have committed these offences. To have to sit there, to listen to how my son was being spoken about by the defence was so hard and it was like theatre in a way because everyone's there and it's like drama and you're listening to all these people talking about your child and you have no input at that point. Your rule of thumb ought to be, what if the victim in this case was my mother? How would I want this case prosecuted? How would I want that person spoken to? Because if it's not good enough for your mother, it's just not good enough. I want to know the last moments of my loved one's life. Now, you just tell me, before you stabbed him, what did she look like? What was she asking for her mother? I wanted to look him in the eye and dare him to repeat that to me face to face, because I knew it was untrue. It was a couple of months after I was released, my probation officer came to me and said, the parents of the person who passed away um, expressed that they wanted ask you some questions. And this was really the first moment for me that I began to realise that there was other people in this process that were experiencing more um, pain and harm than me. So how does the law impact victims and their families? How does it impact the accused? What's it like for victims and defendants going through the legal process, often for the first time? You may have heard of the concept of restorative justice, but how does it actually work? Today I'm joined by two families whose sons were both murdered and a young man who was convicted and imprisoned for manslaughter. But first we'll hear from two of the leading lawyers who were involved in this field. Alison Levitt, Queen's Counsel. Alison was Principal Legal Advisor to the Director of Public Prosecutions for England and Wales. She's now the Head of Business Crime at the law firm Mishkondorea. And Esther Weeks, Queen's Counsel, is one of the UK's leading criminal barristers. Her skills as an advocate has been utilised in a number of public inquiries, such as the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. Alison, now we've heard that your role was as principal legal advisor to the, the Director of Public Prosecutions of England and Wales. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, the principal legal advisor basically uh, is on hand to help the Director of Public Prosecutions with any of the high-profile or difficult cases. There are lots of amazing lawyers in the Crown Prosecution Service who can sort things out at, uh, if you like, at local level. So by the time cases arrived with me, it was because they were either complicated or problematic or high-profile or all three. And, you know, interestingly, Alison, in, in your career... Um, you went from being a very high-profile defence barrister to a role as a prosecutor, and I think the vast majority of your career was as a defence barrister. I spent 20 years defending in barristers' chambers, yeah. Principally, if you're defending people, what you're concerned about is making sure that somebody has a voice, that people who are caught up in the system have a voice and someone can speak on their behalf. There's actually very little difference in being a prosecutor. It always seemed to me that one's principal role as a prosecutor was to be the voice of the victim or the victim's family if the victims weren't there to speak. To be an advocate for victims. Absolutely. To what extent do prosecutors really think about 
victims. Can I answer that by giving a little bit of background that I think is relevant? Please. I think the most important thing here is to remember that prosecutions are not brought by victims, they're brought by the state. And the important thing about that is that it means that there are advantages for victims in that they're not having to pay for it, they're not having to investigate it, the state will do that for mm. them. The disadvantage of it, and I'm sure we will hear something about this later on today, is that often they feel as though they're just witnesses rather than they don't have any special status or any say in the way that the prosecution is conducted or the decisions that are made. I see the families here today all nodding, all nodding in agreement with that. There are other aspects of my job as principal legal advisor and that one of them was that I used to go around the country talking to prosecutors about what makes a good prosecutor. And I used to say to them, first of all, you have to remember why you're here. If the answer to why I'm here is not because of the victims, then you really need to go and find another job. And I would suggest that as a prosecutor, every case you do, your rule of thumb ought to be, what if the victim in this case was my mother? How would I want this case prosecuted? How would I want that person spoken to? Because if it's not good enough for your mother, it's just not good enough. What rights do victims have in a trial? I use the word rights loosely. And again, I, I, see, um, I see people's eyebrows being raised here. Mm. They have the same rights as any witness in the trial process. Again, it comes back to this thing about the fact that the prosecution is not being brought by the victims, but being brought by the state on their behalf. But we have become, I think, more civilised about making sure that they have an involvement in the process. When you and I first started, when uh, when me and Anesta first started, you were barely allowed to introduce yourself to Well, you were terrified. You couldn't because there yeah. could be uh, a Accusations of coaching. Exactly <clears throat> so. Because Coaching a, coaching a witness is illegal in this Let's country. explain what that means. In America, coaching, you can, you can it, get... There's a whole industry. Yeah. yeah, you can get actors, trainers, yeah. if you like, to come and coach the victim and how best to deliver their evidence yep. emotionally. That clearly gave rise not only to um, terrible injustices in some cases, but to a terrible sense of injustice, which in my mind is probably almost as important. So you would get victims who had absolutely no idea what was coming, what they were going to face when they went into that witness box. Nobody had experienced the procedure to them, nobody had explained the law to them and nobody had explained what to, what to expect. You know, Nesta, you've also worked in inquiries as well and perhaps most famously you worked as counsel to the 1999 inquiry into the murder of Stephen Lawrence. How did the inquiry look at the impact of that crime on victims? Well, a very important question. One of the things that Doreen and Neville Lawrence did was to complain constantly that they were not being told what was going on. They wanted to know, not necessarily the legal details, but they wanted to be told, how is the inquiry going? The second thing that they were really concerned about was they felt, as it turned out correctly, that they were not being treated with respect, that they weren't treated as if they were important. They wanted to talk about their son. And as no doubt one or two of our families here will recognise. If you talk about your son, it may help the police to get a sense of who the culprit might be because you're getting to know the character. The very first major change for a family liaison officer came out of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. So that's where it started? It started there. So the police were questioned. Well, why could you not have spoken to Doreen? Why could you not have had meetings with him? Why couldn't you go to their home and say... Just thought I'd let you know how we've been doing this week. It is obviously right for the parents when there has been a death, because every death is terrible and every family will mourn the same way. 
But to have a member of your family killed in circumstances that you remain completely devastated by and alarmed, police officers have to find a way and it's now much better dealt with. So that was one of the things which made a great difference to the inquiry. When you talked about victims being respected, uh, one of the things that changed during the course of the time that I was defending in criminal trials was the emergence of victim impact statements. Mm. But of course, that wouldn't happen until the end of the proceedings. The defendant, who may have pleaded not guilty and consequently put the family through the most extraordinary trauma of having to go through the court process, at the end he's found guilty. And it's only at that moment that the court hears or acknowledges the voice of the families. I think victim impact statements are really important and I can quite understand why the families and the victims might think that they should be brought in at an earlier stage. I have to say that I think the balance is just about right because, frankly, there's no point in hearing about the impact if it's not if that person has not been convicted. And I think pretty much everybody would agree that emotion shouldn't play any part in the rational business of deciding whether there's sufficient evidence. But once that decision's been made, then that's when the victim... Can you just help us with that a bit? Because that really, I think, is the essence of being a lawyer, is the dispassion Mm. required. And sometimes there's a gap between what you're doing as a lawyer and the emotion that's bound up in being a victim. You really just articulated that, and I think, very helpfully. Now, before I turn to Barry and Margaret Misson, have you, either of you, thought about the concept of restorative justice? Restorative justice is a bit of an umbrella term, and it can cover everything from... Um, somebody making, you know, a, a youth making reparation for criminal damage to a garden gate to face-to-face meetings between victims, the, the bereaved families of victims and the defenders. Everything I've heard about it, it's pretty unscientific, but I've spoken to a lot of people about it, suggests that when it works, it can offer a far better outcome for all parties than more traditional forms of punishment. But I do think that we should should be having a lot more input from families to find out why they want it, what are their expectations, whether we can manage those expectations. Because I think to families it it means, well, I, I, I want to know the last moments of my loved one's life. Now, you just told me, before you stabbed him, what did she look like? Was she asking for her mother? It's It's very emotional, but I think as lawyers we have to step off the uh, step of emotional and, and become a little bit more human and understand that families want things quite differently to what we would want within a trial. Raising the Bar on BBC Radio 5 Live. Barry and Margaret Mizzen are the parents of Jimmy Mizzen, who in 2008, at the age of 16, was murdered near their home in south-east London. In March 2009, Jake Fari received a life sentence for murder. Barry and Margaret, can you tell us about the day you got the phone call. We're a large family. I have nine children. Sorry, I should say we have nine children. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Jimmy, left, Jimmy left our house to actually go around the corner to buy a lottery ticket. And Jimmy and I had actually been laughing about the lottery. And Anyway, we worked it out what you had to do. And I went upstairs to start making my beds. Happened to look out of one of my bedroom windows and I saw a friend running into another friend's garden. And you know what it's like when you're being nosy and wondering why my friend was running into another friend's garden and then my mobile phone started ringing and it was one of those friends telling me to get round the corner because Jimmy was being attacked. 
And I remember running round the corner and I, I almost couldn't get there. I couldn't go fast enough. And when I did, there was commotion everywhere. And I realised it was all going on near a bakery. When I went inside, there was glass and blood and sausages everywhere. I went out the back and there was Jimmy lying in a cupboard. Uh, one of his brothers was holding him. And I fainted. And when I came to, I phoned Barry, who was at work five miles away, to say, you need to get home. Our Jimmy's been hurt really bad. And uh, the next thing, it was all commotion, really, until about 40 minutes later, just as Barry uh, was c coming down the road and I was running up to him, that the paramedics came out, took their gloves off and just said Jimmy was dead. And you have to try and make sense of that. How long after hearing that did the police get involved? I couldn't tell you exactly the time, but mm -hmm. I think it was pretty quick, actually. I'm, I mean, there was so much commotion after that. And we eventually went home and I just remember the police being there. I think before we knew it, we had our family liaison officer. If you want to speak about the flow, because Ernesto mentioned yeah. that it came out of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry and what a fantastic thing to come out. Yeah. There is a thirst and a hunger for knowledge, for information in these situations. Yeah. The flow is there to provide that. Yeah. She was a colossus in our life. It made a huge difference. Yeah. It was a great thing that came from that inquiry. Thank you. Barry, can you tell me about Jimmy? Jimmy was a great lad. We had a good relationship, myself and Jimmy. He used to work with me on a Saturday. I have a shoe mender shop. He was my Saturday boy. Uh, the day he died, because his birthday, his 16th birthday, was the day before, he asked for the day off. He had a good sense of humour, Jimmy. Uh, Robert, with the family I've got, I have a, a long line of jokes in the family, and my sons will forever be saying, Dad, we've heard it before, we've heard it before. Jimmy would always laugh at the jokes. Mm -hmm. So we had a great relationship. The investigating police officer uh, described to the media Jimmy as a boy of immaculate character, and that was a great help to us, because that describes Jimmy. Never any problems. Even for the, for the court process, the, the defence uh, were looking for his school records, looking for chinks in his armour. There were none. He was a good, decent young lad. Can I ask you, you, you said uh, before, Margaret, about the family liaison officer being around. Mm. How helpful was this police officer to you? Incredibly helpful. I mean, at the time, we, we didn't actually know what we'd do without her. She was a young a young lady in her very early 30s. We just wanted her around all the time, and, and she was, and she explained everything to us. Uh, we found her amazing, uh, and, and she's, she's a friend to this day. How long after Jimmy died did the case end up in court? I think it was 10, 10 months later. Um, it was the following... So it was March 2009... And during that time, what contact, if any, did you have with any of the lawyers who are going to be dealing with the case? This is before the first day of trial. OK, well, we had a really good contact again. Um, we were taken up to the CPS offices. Um, we were taken through the process. We met the barrister. They, they, they just took us through the whole history of what was going to happen. Um, but we were also taken to the court and shown yeah. around the court and, and things were explained yeah. to us. So I didn't feel at any time that I didn't know what was going on, mm. if I'm honest. You know, I'm, we just found... But, but then we didn't know what to expect either. We were, this hadn't happened to us before. In terms of the trial itself, can you, can, did the, the person who killed Jimmy... Um, did he plead his guilty? Jake. Jake. Okay. No, no, he no, he pleaded not guilty. He, he was not guilty except on the day of the trial, along came the defence. They would now plead guilty to manslaughter, but it was not going to be accepted. It is so cruel to do that to people. He'd always insisted he was not guilty. Mm. Absolutely. And then on the first day of trial, the lawyers also will help with this, um, an offer presumably was made to the he prosecution guilty, from the, his defence lawyer mm -hmm. to say, look, I accept the act of killing Jimmy, but I don't ex 
I do not accept that I intended to kill him or to cause him GBH, mm -hmm. which is what you would need for murder, mm -hmm. but I'll accept the lower charge mm -hmm. of manslaughter. And, and this was explained to you. You said you wanted to say something about that, Barry. Well, I, th I think it came out earlier from Alison, um, you know, how much involvement we had. I think we were aware that when it came, push came to shove, the, the decision was going to be made by the CPS, not by us. I, I, yeah, we are grateful that that wasn't accepted. Um, we appreciate and can see now that it could have come out at the end of the trial. It was going to be guilty of manslaughter. It came out that he was guilty of murder for all the various reasons. Just to be clear then, in the course of the trial, he would have said something like he was either provoked into attacking Jimmy or something of that sort, which would have reduced the case from being one of murder mm -hmm. to manslaughter. What was his defence? He actually said it was all Jimmy's fault he, when he got up. He, he said that Jimmy was the instigator. Jimmy was the one that swore. Jimmy was the one that started the fight. So he had a loss of control of what it would have been in law to say that yeah. I didn't intend to kill you, which would have reduced the case, would have reduced mm. the charge from murder to manslaughter. We, we, How did you we, feel we, about that when you were told? <laughs> Again, you don't know. You, you've, you've never been there before. This is all new to you. You, you mm. trust the barristers and, and the police, uh, and everyone was so supportive of us. Um, I think the strange thing was his, his defence was self-defence, and then it comes down to witnesses. 140-odd witness statements taken, none to support what he said, 14 uh, witnesses coming to court to all say there or thereabouts the version that, that was accepted, None on behalf of him. But there are you. Why it was allowed, why it was allowed by, by the judge, I just do not know. There was no defence. If I can just come in there, Barry, because I, I, I really feel the emotion of what you say and the phrase, why was this allowed by the judge? Something that you should know about our job. We accept instructions from a client. And if he says, I didn't intend to murder anybody... And I know that there are 10 prosecution witnesses who are saying that I was in the centre of this fight and I had the knife, but it wasn't me. Now, lawyers who defend are human beings. They know if their client is running the defence, which is unlikely to be successful. And it is our duty to tell the client that. It's our duty to say the 12 people who will sit on this jury are unlikely to accept what you say. And my advice is that you actually should be pleading guilty. And sometimes it's our job to tell defendants to plead guilty to murder. But they have a right to have a trial, even though that trial of not guilty is going to be unrealistic. The judge has no role to suggest that he shouldn't run his trial. At the end, though, a judge is likely to say, this case was overwhelming. You get no credit for pleading guilty and the case that you ran had no merit. It doesn't help his position for sentence. One of the things somebody might say about Jake's defence is that he sought to rob you and everybody else of Jimmy's reputation, the only thing he had to leave. What does that feel like to watch somebody suggesting that in the course of a criminal trial? Very difficult, and I'll let Margaret ask this in a second. Uh, but the impact statement when he was found guilty allowed us to then say what Jimmy was like because it's almost as though the victim is not spoken about except the, the, the defence is trying to get some sort of leverage to their point. Uh, and then the only defence that we could see, they, they played on the fact that Jimmy, being he was a lot taller, Yes, he was three years younger than Jake. Jimmy was still a schoolboy. Although he was a lot taller, ergo, he must be a bully. Uh, and that was about it. 
Yeah, that was incredibly hard to listen to, actually. It was two things. One um, was the fact that we are Millwall supporters and so they went off to Millwall and looked at records and things, could find nothing on Jimmy and went to Jimmy, looked at his school records. But the only thing they came up with was the fact that Jimmy was six foot four and that made him a bully. And as you're sitting there as a family listening to that, it's incredibly hard. But can we just go back to the whole procedure of the court from a mother's point of view? Because... We only had a two-week trial, which is relatively short in in these circumstances. We were told it would be longer, but it was two weeks. But from my point of view, it was the hardest two weeks of my life to have to sit there to listen to how my son was being spoken about by the defence um, was so hard. And it was like theatre in a way, because everyone's there and it's like drama and you're listening to all these people talking about your child and you have no input at that point is so hard. As a family, we are really close, so we were there and we were actually in the well of the court, but the rest of our family had to sit upstairs in the public gallery with Jake's family. Uh, So people understand, you had your family, Jimmy's brothers and sisters, sitting in the public gallery alongside the person who, it was accepted in the course of the trial, had killed him. Mm -hmm. Did you speak to your family and ask them how that felt? They, they found it hard. We did talk about it after. Not only did they find it hard, at one point, Jake's family was tooting and swearing at our family. And, and, and actually, the, the, the judge did say that if this continued, they'd have to go out. However, it was still incredibly hard. So I, I just feel, from, as I say, from a mother's point of view, the pain I felt during those two weeks were the worst two weeks of my life. And after the trial, and he was found guilty of murder, by the time I got home, I cried like I'd never cried before. And I cried all night. Every time I hear of another trial going and the parents, I think of the pain they're going through. Now, um, Barry and Margaret... It's very interesting to me that you described, I said, the person who killed your son. You give him a name. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with and heard about cases in America, for example, and in this country where people use this word, the monster. Mm-hmm. It seems important to you, especially, Barry, to give him that name. Mm-hmm. Why we, is that important? We, we tend to use terms of scum and things like that. I don't want to go down that, that route. I want this, the things that we say now, I want them to come across as reasonable uh, and, and I think well-founded. Um, so for us, it's about talking about the name, um, about personalising the whole thing. Jake is in prison now. He's been in prison for eight years. He got a life sentence just to be... He, he got a life sentence with the minimum tariff. I don't want to come across as bitter. Um, I'm not, I think by sometimes using these derogatory terms... We undo what we're trying to say. Well, you said in an article, which I have to say I was very moved by a few years ago, you said, I knew that it was wrong to try and fight anger with anger. When did your anger turn to forgiveness? (laughs) Right. Have we got another three or four hours? Let's start talking about (laughs) forgiveness. (laughs) Right, Okay. My my wife, bless her heart, said on the, the, the following day, that anger breeds anger and bitterness, and she didn't want to go down that route. A genuine empathy for their family. So the headlines on the Monday newspapers, Barry and Margaret forgive the person who killed their son. But we didn't say that. They said forgive. But we base everything we do now around forgiveness and peace. What is forgiveness? Where does this come from? This, this comes from us, from reflecting on what happened. Um, I think to us, forgiveness, to me personally, forgiveness, take the, the Desmond Tutu quote, is the best form of self-interest. Mm. I, to me, forgiveness is I don't want to do to you what you did to me, and that to me is forgiveness. Margaret, you said that you promised Jimmy two things on the day he died. What were they? 
it was in the evening, quite late. Um, you can imagine our house was filled with lots and lots of people, hundreds of people, because of all our children, all their friends were there, our friends, the local community. And I had to go up to my bedroom to get away from everything, to try and make sense of it. Were people really crying downstairs because we'd lost our beautiful son? And in the quiet of my bedroom, I just made Jimmy two promises. One, that we'd do everything to keep his name alive because he was a beautiful young man. And secondly, as a family, we would dedicate our lives to working for peace in Jimmy's memory, but for all young people. And we go into lots of schools now, and I say that to young people, that that was our promise to Jimmy, but that is also our promise to these young people, that we will do everything to make this a safer, more peaceful world. What would you, what do you think either of you would say to Jake if you well, could meet him? Uh, We've been in prisons and we have met people who have committed murder and they've cried on our shoulders and they've said, I'm so sorry, I wish I hadn't done it because it's too late, but I've taken them in my arms. However, when you talk about meeting Jake, it's a different kettle of fish, really. I don't have any hate towards Jake and I do forgive him and I would love to meet him just to ask him, how did you manage to turn into this angry young man? However... I've got a really large family and if it ever came about that we had an opportunity to meet him, we would sit down as a family and discuss it. But if one member of my family said, Mum, Dad, we don't want you to meet him, then we wouldn't because the one thing I would never do is cause my children any more pain because they go through enough pain each and every day, even now. And you've set up this amazing charity for Jimmy called For Jimmy. Can you tell us something about it? Everything we do is for Jimmy, whether it's peace for Jimmy, schools for Jimmy, cafes for Jimmy. So it seemed appropriate to use the word for Jimmy. What's the mission of the charity? To promote the good in young people and to, to, to make them a positive force in their communities and, and to make our... Safe. And to keep them safe. But more than anything, we need to make our communities safer and we get young people to use their voices to do that. I have to ask you this question. To what extent... Do you think you've achieved justice for Jimmy? We look at justice and we say, you know, justice to some people is locking someone up for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Justice for me was the truth. I wanted the truth to come out about my son in court for the kind of young man he was. A really, really beautiful young man. And that came out. So I felt I got justice. Well, thank you, Barry and Margaret. After the news, we'll hear from the Rogers family to talk about their experience of restorative justice and Jacob Dunn, who met the family of the man that he killed. <laughs> 